Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Frent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Chris Shastock is one of the national leaders of CBRE's location strategy and incentive practice. This advisory group assists clients globally with site selection and economic incentive negotiations in conjunction with the overall strategy and execution of corporate real estate initiatives. With more than 12 years of experience aligning location decisions with business strategy, Chris has negotiated more than $1.2 billion in incentives and has experience representing clients on corporate headquarters, back office strategy, food production and processing, manufacturing and distribution center projects. And we've got them here on location at Exchange, MEDC's 2019 Summer Conference. So don't be surprised if you hear a little background noise. Please welcome Chris Shastock. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So jumping right in, what are some of the, what is really the first thing you look at when you're developing a location strategy for a new client? Or is that so broad that it's different, obviously, for each client? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, but it is it is truly bespoke. It's going to be different every single time. Are there going to be certain components of a project which are uniform or a couple pieces which you can kind of take from strategy to strategy? Yes, of course. However, supply chain projects and outcomes vary, labor requirements vary, utility requirements vary rail requirements vary the absolute endless amount of criteria that goes into a project let alone the industry right you know the the question wasn't for an office deal or for a heavy manufacturing deal or for a food processing project or a new you know coding uh, operation so it's it's endless but there are some of those uniform pieces, which is, you know, and you've probably heard this dozens of times. Labor is labor is core. It's it's really a risk mitigation game, not so much a site selection. It's a site elimination process. And labor will continue to be paramount in these decisions, whether you're trying to hire an actuary or a UX coder or a diesel mechanic or an aluminum welder. The those those core components of a market of how you get people into the box to do the work will all, will always be core to the project. And I like the way you phrase that. It's really a risk mitigation game. So trying to minimize risk for your client so that they are in the best possible position to be successful. So how important are the traditional then site selection factors? And you mentioned some of them, um, including available sites, obviously workforce, and incentives in the strategy. And I've had, you know, I've spoken with consultants recently and at times, and they go back and forth on incentives. They're like, you know, that's just the sprinkling, you know, sprinkles on top of the Sunday, so to speak, at the end of the day. But for others, it may be a little more critical. So, you know, how important are these factors? Let's start with available sites and for you, especially being with CBRE. You know, sites, sites in real estate are, it's kind of table stakes. You know, everybody's got sites. I think the quality of sites varies, obviously based on what kind of cluster or core industries you're trying to attract, especially in the Southeast and in Mississippi. You know, these are 
probably overwhelmingly and often going to be manufacturing industrial related projects. So, you know, the quality of a site, but moreover, I think the speed of a site. So what do I mean by that? You know, there there are sites that are filled with trees today and there are sites that are pad ready with all utilities pulled to the site, um, zoning, all the easements in place, environmental. Fully, fully entitled, environmental, ready to rock and roll. And speed to market will always continue to be crucial. So, yeah, do, do sites matter? But, you know, all of the neighboring states, no matter where you are in the country, also have sites or, or can, frankly, come up with a site solution. Talking about workforce and, you know, it's a major driver. And right now, uh, communities across country is not unique to Mississippi or any other communities that we're experiencing thin labor pool right now. Um, have you seen anybody that's been addressing this in sort of a unique way to uh, help clients meet their workforce needs, either through training or bringing people in on uh, a work study type program? You know, that's a common question that is asked. I think I think the reality is everybody's talking about it. Nobody really knows the answer. <laughs> it's a it's a costly problem to solve for. It's a political problem to solve for. The structure and way, excuse me, the structure of how we as a country educate our K through 12th graders today is stale. So yeah, are there communities and cities and school districts around the country that have come up with new and improved ways of more flexible learning, more tailored learning, more apprenticeship style learning, going away from the core curriculum style of math, science, you know, phys ed? Yeah. However, I think what your question is, everyone tells you labor is an issue. So what is anybody doing about it? Exactly. Right? Yeah. And there are some that are on the forefront. I don't think anybody's gotten it correct. I certainly don't know the answer, but I think one can now clearly look back and say, trying to solve this in high school is far too late. And you've got to find ways based on what your community's needs are, who your employers are, what industry is asking and looking for, and realize you just can't import. It's got to come from the ground up. It needs to be it needs to be built. And I think there are some great European models which have been very successful in Europe, which maybe are not totally applicable in the US, but it's a decent place. We do a lot more start. apprenticeships over there and yeah, I think apprenticeships and there's there's far less pressure in Europe to graduate from you know, gymnasium, which is our, their high school, our high school, and go to college. You know, there is there is pressure certainly to find meaningful work, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're on a master's or a PhD track or going right in workforce from college. It is an apprenticeship that starts in high school, and you find your way into a career track. And students and young people there wrong or right, are put into tracks at a very young age. And that starts early. So it's not you're 18 and you make a decision which way you want to go. You start making that decision far earlier in your life cycle and preparing yourself to either go for further academics or work. Or during your high school, gymnasium career, 
you start working in manufacturing or in an office related field. So they of course don't have it right either. It's not a one size fits all, not a one size fits all. And so I think the community that finds a way to be flexible and creative and nimble, especially with the new generations that are coming, you talk about flexible work shifts (laughs) and factories you know, I think young people are going to continue to demand, demand that their learning look a lot different than their siblings or their parents or their grandparents. They communicate differently. They learn differently. Um, and learning how to work with that. I want to talk a little bit about uh, incentives, and you've negotiated a lot of incentives in the past. And, you know, are there any new trends in you're seeing in other communities or states where they're offering uh, certain type of incentive packages that are attractive to your clients? So you you started out this original question talking about incentives and sites and, and labor. I think you know my my feeling about incentives is that are they are they necessary? Yeah, absolutely. Are they important? Absolutely. Do they drive projects? No. Should they drive projects? No. And I think when you you hear the word incentive come up all the time, but I think incentives incentives alone have evolved right so many of so many states have had incentives on the books in defined as a tax credit a non-refundable corporate income tax credit often those were great for your big blue chip companies 15 20 years ago 25 30 years ago the reality is that so many companies that are making investments in the US right now FDI or technology startups or everyone in between can't necessarily monetize that. They can't, there's, there's no utility to that tax credit. And so incentives are evolving and what incentives I think are being consistently tailored towards workforce development and structured partnerships with universities and really helping companies get comfortable with a talent pipeline and less focused on the round peg round hole approach which was you know we've got a jobs tax credit and many of those still exist on the books but you are seeing states come up with mechanisms to make them saleable or refundable so that everybody can potentially monetize that and so there's value in that credit but i but i think you know core site selection project is not driven by where where the largest incentive package shall be offered. It's all the things we've, we've already mentioned and talked about. And yeah, incentives using your words are the sprinkles or the cherry, you know, or or the icing on top. Most states and counties and cities in this country have some form of incentives and kind of like sites. Everybody's got kind of like sites. Everybody has them and everybody's got a different one. And some of, some of them are, have more utility and value than others do. And you'll see that continue to change as well. Looking up uh, from a higher view and not, you know, at the very granular level, but just 30,000 foot view, are you seeing uh, any trends in certain sectors right now, uptick, so to speak, manufacturing, food processing, anything on the horizon? Yeah, my my read on that, again, sitting here in July of 2019, <laughs> not sure when this podcast will go out. Yeah. Um, that said, soon, soon. <laughs> Obviously, uh, foreign direct investment over the last two and a half years has been ag- aggressive. I think I think that's a common trend you've seen based on 
kind of geopolitical sphere in which we're in, right? The the dynamics of leadership in this country and tariffs are big discussions. Price of steel is a big discussion. How potential future tariffs and reactions even uh, to our friends and partners in the EU are mm-hmm. certainly driving uncertainty right now. It's yet to be determined. Yeah, what, I think they suggest what, $24 billion approximately? Yeah, what what the president will ultimately decide mm-hmm. decide to do there. You've seen it with China. You've seen it with Mexico. Obviously, a lot of rhetoric and discussion um, with our neighbors to the north in Canada. So FDI, I think, is front and center. The The world of food is certainly interesting as as the the tastes and lifestyle and decision making about what people feed their families and themselves continues to change what you ate as a child is probably not and maybe not the same as what you eat not today, even close right now <laughs> and you look at some of the big core food companies and look what their look at what their product mix is today versus what it was even just five or 10 years ago. And that is shaping not only the the mix of product, but it's changed everything. Look at the way it impacts packaging. Look at the way changes in food have impacted supply chain and the ability to get something on a shelf immediately and the fresh food movement. And that's that's all before diving into this this new trend and maybe here to stay in soy pea based plant based protein which has become almost the new greek yogurt which is it absolutely exploded and it's come rapidly and that is direct direct correlation to the way many americans have chosen or will begin to change their diet away from cattle, beef, protein, poultry business, which is also absolutely here to stay. But look at look at some of the big companies that have historically sold only a pork or a beef-based protein. They got into poultry. Then just look at the last six months. Some of the largest food companies in the world have started selling plant-based protein as a staple of their product mix. And that's that's really, really telling. And I think there are a lot of people that would probably roll in their grave. <laughs> and there's certainly whole segments of the population. It's become contentious legislation in some states as to whether you can call plant-based protein meat. Yeah. And it's, it's just wild. And so, you know, between FDI and food, and I think the general continued e-commerce boom the world in which we live in right now where everybody wants on demand, everybody wants it within a day, within half a day, within an hour, uh, this on demand economy in which we live, you're seeing an absolute uptick in the way companies look at citing facilities in, in order to meet, meet demands. And so that could be e-commerce, that could be food. Certainly our friends and neighbors around the world are looking at North America as a continued location for investment for their products talking about food and food processing and all of that you know somebody pointed out earlier today that you know companies are actually shortening the shelf life of food so we go towards more natural and organic and you know less preservatives and all that which means you need to cite more food you know distribution or processing plants closer to where their customers are and certainly 
an opportunity for growth. Yeah, I, f- food and what you see on the the shelves in the grocery stores is really interesting. It's 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 frequently changing. Many staples that you're used to of just a couple of years ago, sometimes they disappear completely off the shelf, um, or other times are, are replaced. And sometimes it's purely packaging and branding, but the continued refinement by the historical kind of titans of food production in this country is is really, really interesting. And it filters through to the entire business it changes packaging it changes supply chain it changes the raw ingredient and finished finished good mix and i think as you continue to see changes in where population is and where populations are growing or shrinking you're seeing food companies as you just said as they look at shorter shelf life try to be more strategic about where they need to be and where where they need their product to move to in a timely fashion definitely so are there any strategies right now that a community can adopt? And what should they be focused on initially? You know, I, th- I think the, the answer that comes to mind there is maybe not so specific, but an overarching statement, which is, you know, listen, pay attention to industry, pay attention to what's in your backyard, clearly hone in on a strategy of growing what is in your market today while having an eye on attraction, but ensure that as you go through your life of economic development, you are continuing to ask the questions and be an active listener to the industry that's already in your backyard today and, and, and hear what their issues are and what their successes are and what their, what their needs and wants and desires to continue to grow. And much of what they say you can clearly deploy as you look to attracting new business as well. So I would say listen, focus on focus on your strengths, focus on looking to attract continued investment, whether that is new or ex- expansion based from from industries that you know that you can you know that you can serve. You know, this economic development is is a really fluid business. It's always changing. Everyone's it demands is. are going to be different. There, there is no easy button. But I think, com- uh, excuse me, not companies, communities that continue to be nimble do not put themselves in a box and close the lid and say, this is the only way to do it, so we will continue to do it this way and are prepared for the, the dynamic aspects of a project and understanding that it's going to be different every single time. The personalities and decision makers are going to be different every single time. And the world in which we live in and the economy in which we live in, you know, is always changing. And companies companies' demands are one thing, but goes back to what we started with is this is risk mitigation. Companies want to make a sound decision where they can be successful and profitable and have their investment be safe. And that is what, that is what ultimately drives site selection projects. And I think communities that take the time to look deep inside and formulate a strategy and build a team around solving for those kind of core pillars are, putting themselves in position to be successful when the time comes. And I see a lot of communities who don't really partner with their local industries. They're just there. 
but they're really there's a big divide or separate entity and maybe just a few you know common affiliations or associations in like a chamber organization or something yeah it's it's fascinating how often you'll hear a client say yeah you know we've been here for 40 years or 400 years whatever the number <laughs> is right um new or legacy presence and ask them a question about one of their concerns and they'll often say i i don't i've never spoken to anybody from from the city or i don't i don't know the economic development folks and when you hear that you know there's that's that's a problem and assuming that because someone is in your market today they will be in your market forever is the wrong assumption to make and if you're not growing you're shrinking he can help you mitigate risk cbre's chris shastock thanks for joining us thank you mississippi prospects is brought to you by the mississippi economic development council the mississippi development authority cooperative energy greater jackson alliance entergy mississippi power tennessee valley authority watkins and eager butler snow jones walker and produced by potisteri studios if you have questions or comments join us on twitter at medc info